Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I knew what I was going to do was going to be very special with my life. I'm an example just to show people that like, you come up from nothing. Prince had dedicated his whole legacy to celebrating women, celebrating women of color, and celebrating positive music. I'm going to uphold that. You're your own worst critic. I feel like you should be it anyways, but I, I'm always that, and I was just hating my song, so I was hating myself. Some people are at their cubicle job right now making way less than us. Some people are across the world in a goddamn sweatshop making, like, nothing a day, and we're getting paid to sing and dance. To sing and dance, that's a blessing. Artists out here, they're just willing to settle for anything. You know what I mean? And once you're willing to settle for anything, you deserve anything you settle for. Yo, this young murder. Yo, this is Lizzo. This is August Regal. What's good? It's Kehlani. This is your man, Blake Carrington. You're listening to The Come Up Show. Get inspired. Hey, welcome to The Come Up Show podcast. My name is Cheddar. I'm the host and founder of The Come Up Show. My guest today is Clifton Reddick, a.k.a. Clifton, who's a person responsible for creating Battle of the Beatmakers, which is responsible for discovering Grammy Award-winning producers such as Boy Wanda, T-Minus, Wonder Girl, 1985, Seven Thomas, as well as hundreds of rising producers like Francis Got Heat and Jordan Manswell. Clifton wrote a book called Toronto Sound Volume 1, which is a memoir of the city's rising producers, which is why he's on the podcast to talk about the book. And Clifton tells me how Battle of the Beatmakers came to be the epic beat battle between Boy Wanda versus Arthur MacArthur, Drake's first ever live performance, and so much more. Yo, Toronto, yo, listeners from wherever you may be, we're about to go on a journey through Toronto rap history. Clifton on the Come Up Show podcast. Let's go! Please introduce yourself. Uh, I go by the name of Clifton, Clifton Reddick, um, founder of Battle of the Beatmakers, uh, and author of a new book called Toronto Sound Volume 1. And, um, you know, it's basically covering some of the history in Toronto as far as production is concerned and as far as the city's history as a, as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's a memoir. So it's written from my first-hand experience mm-hmm. um, and just walking people through the stages of my introduction to hip-hop in Toronto and my involvement over the years and up to where I am right now with it. Yeah, so let's talk about your introduction to hip-hop in Toronto. Right. Are you yourself a producer or or um, you're an observer? You're a, like... My we, hi- my yeah, history, my history with production. Yeah, I mean, other than being in high school, banging on tables and getting kicked out of class. Yeah, but formally, I went to Trebis Institute in 1996. Um, I was taught by Gadget. He was one of the main teachers. Um, he's also the same one that taught Forty and most of the producers that were in the earlier era of Toronto, the Grassroots, the Socrates. They all came up on the Gadget. So he was my teacher as well when I went to Trebis in '96. Um, that was an audio engineering program. Um, so we're, for the people who don't know who Gadget is, who is Gadget? Because he's is, very influential, very important to he's, Toronto. He's that guy. He's yeah. like, the scene in Toronto, it, it definitely could not be what it is today without Gadget. He's a critical piece. I mean, as I said, all the product, all the producers, like the grassroots, who are like the foundation Toronto producers, um, the Socrates, um, 40, you know, obviously, um, he's the person that pretty much brought all those guys under his wing. Mm-hmm. You know? So you're in Trebis? Right. I was in Trebis yeah. 96 studying audio engineering. Um, I didn't complete the course, but that was my introduction to it. 
Um, and a lot of people from those early classes are the ones that are now doing a lot of things in the city. So it's funny to see how things evolve. Mm-hmm. But in 96, way before internet and all that, before software, we're just using hardware. Everything was hardware. I never really pursued production beyond that. I kind of left it at that level, kind of dropped out of the scene and then reemerged a decade later with BBM. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yeah, your uh, your book, Toronto Sound, Volume 1, A Memoir of the City's Writing Producers, in the description it says, you know, the progress, uh, the, the process began in the early 80s and would begin right. to blossom in 2005. Right. So what was happening, you know, giving us a little history lesson from the 80s to 2005 in Toronto history in terms of right. production and the whole scene? I landed in Toronto in 1981, 82. Okay. From, uh, from where? From the East Coast, Nova Scotia. A little town called New Glasgow. New Glasgow, Like an hour and a half from Halifax, maybe. So, I mean, that's my background, Scotian and African, so just a mix. Um, But I I came to Toronto in 81, 82, and I was just a b-boy. Everything started off as a b-boy, breakdancing. That was the foundation of hip-hop for everybody. At that time, for me, was breakdancing. Everybody was breakdancing. That was the thing. When I was born, it wasn't really hip-hop in Canada. I was born in the funk era, Soul, the James Brown, Earth, Wind, and Fires, Temptation. That's what I was born into. Hip-hop, it started in the 70s, but it wasn't in Canada until the 80s. So by the time we got it, like 82, 83, um, Ron Nelson was the person that pretty much introduced us all to hip-hop, the Fantastic Voyage program. So I'm a break dancer growing up, Run DMC, Grandmaster Flash, UTFO, Fat Boys, um, LL Cool J. Those are all the groups that were popping at the time. And our main fix to get our feed for hip-hop was Ron Nelson's show, the Fantastic Voyage program. That That's pretty much what fed the city. You know, anybody and everybody, that was your feed. I would say, as I, as I mentioned in the book, 85% of the hip-hop we had access to in 82, 83, well, 83, because that's when it started, was all Ron Nelson. The other 10% came from people who got cassettes. They would go to New York, record the shows like Mr. Magic show on WBLK, uh, Red Red, DJ Red Alert. Yeah. Um, those were the main, you had to go to New York, record your stuff on tapes, bring it back. And that's how we got another 10%. And then the final 5% for me came from moms buying records. So mm. getting me the Grandmaster Flashes, the UTFOs, the Run DMCs. She would buy you the records. She bought me the records. Okay. So between Ron Nelson's show, getting cassettes, and moms buying you records, that's where all hip-hop came from. I mean, I wasn't old enough to go to clubs. I didn't go to, get to go to clubs till like 88. Mm-hmm. Um, so the concert halls, the party centers. Because Ron Nelson was also putting all the was, concerts he together. He was that guy. Yeah. Man. Just like Gadget was that guy in his yeah. lane. Yeah. Ron Nelson. I mean, Ron Nelson is like cool herc to me in Toronto. You know, without Ron Nelson, I can't even tell you. What, there would be no battle of the beat makers. I can tell you that. Because mm-hmm. it was me going to his events, like the Monster Jam, which was like the premier hip-hop event premiere series that's what opened me up to like wow okay this is hip-hop this is how it's done this is how battles are done because he was the only one bringing that it was usually toronto versus montreal versus new york versus philly those were the four main cities that would battle um and it was always usually a dj competition breakdance competition and rap battles those are the main things you would see like toronto against new york toronto against montreal toronto against philly so a lot of that was taking place in the early 80s a lot of battles and me just a kid observing it because it was all ages then. So I was 13-year-old going out with 20-year-olds, and it was like nothing. And the clubs went to 5 in the morning, so it wasn't like 2 a.m., everything's cut. We were leaving clubs when people are waking up to go to work. You know, that was how Toronto was in those days. Mm. 5 a.m. was the cutoff. That was when parties closed. Um, but that was normal to us, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like it was something, wow, we get to stay to 5. That was just normal to us. I just mm. remember hopping on the buses. People are going to work and we're trying to get, get you know, just leaving the party. But just growing up, like, it's, it's, you know, when I look back, it's like, wow, well, I went to Weston. 
with the guys from the original Degrassi, the first Degrassi, a dude named uh, BLT. Dial was his real name, but he went by BLT on the first series of Degrassi. Um, so just experiencing all of that, like seeing Mishimi firsthand in high school, going to the same high school, seeing Dream Warriors before they blew up. Um, you know, I grew up on Jane Street, Jane and Finn, so seeing Maestro before he blew up, just dudes around the area like a lot of a lot of stuff was circulating around jane street jane and finch so you've seen a lot of the early hip-hop movement electric circus was a popular show back in the days and a lot of the dancers on the show came from the area so you're just seeing like all these different parts of hip-hop that at the time you're not understanding that that's forming a whole scene but you're just in it at the time so you're just observing it firsthand and just going through that experience so mm. that's pretty much that's in a nutshell what the early days were i mean there's a lot more components to it obviously a lot of different parts of the city were doing a thing Flemo was doing a thing Rexdale was doing a thing um but from my experience that's pretty much few things that were going on at the time so your your uh, your your foundation your understanding right. you're absorbing you're participating totally uh what led you to creating battle of the beat makers right in 2005 well um let's see i mean as i said growing up on jane street you're surrounded by a lot of stuff good and bad I unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, it's, it's all a part of the process, but I had a lot of that street environment around, you know what I mean? So I come, I, I came around that background, I had that around me. Um, so it was a point in time around 96 when there was a lot of negativity. I mean, the Bloods and Crip phenomenon made its way to Toronto and the hood, the, the neighborhood I lived in basically divided itself into two, the up top and the bottom. Up top was Crip, south side was Blood. And just that environment, like going to high school with all these guys and being in around that environment, it wasn't that good. So I kind of wanted a little break. I dipped to Scotia for two weeks, two week break, just to say, you know what, I'm just going to clear my head, get away from this crazy stuff that was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. So how old were you when this? This is 20. This is 96. Mm -hmm. This is right after Trebis, pretty much. Okay. Because um, I went to Trebis for a hot minute. I went to George Brown, studied. I went from audio engineering at Trebis to mechanical engineering at George Brown. Basically, my pop's wishes, which wasn't, he's an engineer, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. So that didn't last long. We all know about that. We all go through that, man, especially <laughs> yeah. from the continent, because African yeah. parents are very, yep. when it comes to education, they don't play. So yep. him being a professional engineer wanted me to follow in his shoes. So I did the tool and die making thing for a minute. It wasn't really my thing. So, you, you know, you're 21. You're not really sure what you want to do with your life. Dropped out of that. And I was just kind of lost for a minute. Within a year or two span of that, a lot of the, the street stuff that was going on at the time. So I just wanted a break from that. As I said, I went to Scotia for like a two-week break. It's planned to be two weeks. Two weeks turned into five years, as fate would have it. Five years. Yeah. Wow. Like two weeks. I just planned to go there for two weeks, and two weeks turned it into five years. And you had so family there. I had family there. Okay. So, what attracted you to be there for five years? Um, life was probably slower. First of all, just to get away from the street element that I yeah. was going through, like anything was better than that at the time. Because, like, okay, I'm going to do two weeks and go right back to that. It's like, nah, let me chill for a minute. Ended up getting a job, ended up doing a radio show. I did a show called the Youth Entrepreneurship Show in Scotia. So, I used to interview kind of like this it, entrepreneurs across canada um one of the main interviews that i that touches the hardest uh, uh, interview with saw guy manager of the rascals so he was kind of putting me on to a lot of the hip-hop stuff that he was dealing with you know what i mean and i'm just like a fan like rascals like that was a big deal in that time so um so i did the youth entrepreneurship show it was kind of a conflict of interest because it's a community station uh community uh show but yet you're promoting like business so it was kind of a conflict, but at the same time, it was a youth show. They kind of let it go, let it go under the radar because of that. 
Um, but we're, I'll just in, every week, uh, just interviewing different entrepreneurs about their business ventures across Canada. For a hot minute, I was the interim station coordinator because the person, I guess, resigned at the time. So for like a few weeks, I was filling in for that. Um, and just taking in all those different experiences, doing the graveyard shift, because when you start on the radio, they put you at that midnight, I think it's 12 to 3 or 12 mm. to I think it was 12 to 6. It was some crazy shit. Yeah. But that's like the rites of passage everybody has to go that's, through before they get it. Mine was 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. every Wednesday. I think Wednesdays. that's what it was. Yeah. I think that's what it was, 2 to 6. It was yeah. crazy. So I did that for a few months. But just working, first, you know, my first time getting on the internet was at that job. I didn't know nothing about internet or computers, and not, not until I got that job, 97. And then after five years, it's like, okay, as you said, Scotia is a small place. It's kind of like, okay, I did that, did that, did that. Let me, it's time to go back to the city. You know what I mean? So 2002, come back to Toronto. And what changed in that time? Like, did wow. you recognize the city? Like, <laughs> yeah. At first, it's yeah. crazy, man. It might sound silly, but when you leave a big city for a while and come back, even though it's your city and that's what you knew, it was like, wow, this is too fast for me. <laughs> It was, it people was crazy. Say that. Usually yeah. people from small towns right, always say right. that as well. It's too. like, bro, I grew yeah. up here. This is yeah. my city. But yeah. I came back and I was like, no, this is too fast for me now. Yeah. My mind had slowed down to like a small town mentality. So it's like, damn, can I, can I, you know, can I get back into the swing of the city? So I kind of had doubts at first. Um, but I jumped into a youth program, you know, program just to help you get back on your feet. Um, this was based in Saga because I was in Saga for a bit. Ended up actually working at Ryerson. I got a, a, a contract at Ryerson to help coordinate job fairs here. Mm-hmm. So um, I did that for like a year. But while I'm doing that, I'm also still into hip hop. So I was trying to push mixtapes. I was actually um, pushing Point Blank's mixtapes because they were, in my opinion, they were the hottest group when I came back to the city. Yeah. So they had their Top Shotas mixtape. Me and my cousin, we were trying to do many things. One of them was start a marketing company. We were trying to create these stands, kind of like HMV. They have those stands where you can kind of go and put headphones on and listen to a song. Mm -hmm. We were trying to create that kind of machine in a little different format, Um, something that you could put in a barbershop, music shop, wherever shop. So people could go in and if you had like a certain deal with a certain artist, anybody going in and listening to them would only be able to listen to that artist because that's the artist we're working with. So it's kind of like a machine that we made. We welded it together, put it together, put headphones on it. We're trying to create our own product that we were going to distribute all across Southern Ontario and kind of create like our own distribution company. That was the idea. Um, but technology was changing quickly. And before you know it, HMV already had that kind of yeah thing in, in place. So it's like, okay, good idea. Just didn't work for us. But at the same time, we said, well, we're still going to try this thing pushing point blank because that's the group that was hot. We were feeling them. And we just took their CDs and just started distributing it all across London, Kitchener, Hamilton, just driving, burning mad gas, driving all over the province, just getting it out there. Um, and all the little mom and pop shops, you know, we paid them cash to give us a stack of CDs and we just go hit the stores up. So we did that for like, this is 2003, did that for the summer. Realized that wasn't going to be that profitable because we're just burning a lot of gas. It was cool. It was a good vibe. And it taught me a lot about what's going on outside of Toronto. And it taught me their view of Toronto. Like everywhere I was going, they were all looking to Toronto like we're going to lead the way. So this is like 2003. And then within a year after that, it's kind of when the seeds of BBM started to come into form. Because now I'm traveling to the outskirt areas. I'm hearing what people are saying. I'm getting back in the swing of things as far as hip-hop in the city, hearing what's hot, who's doing what. Um, and when I looked around, because I grew up in the era, as I said, the early 80s, everybody had to be kind of original. You had like the Run-EMCs, 
they had their lane. The Fat Boys had their lane. Every artist in hip-hop was very much about creating your own sound, your own thing. Biting was a big issue in hip-hop. People got beat up for that stuff in hip-hop. Early days, that was like fighting stuff. You know what I mean? You go to a dance and you're dancing and someone bites you, that could be a fight. You're going to a show and someone's rapping and you bite the lyrics, that could be a problem. So there was a lot of that beat biting and don't be a biter kind of energy. So coming up with that, and when I looked around in Toronto at the time, there was events for everybody except producers. There was rap battles. There was breaking battles. There was tons of DJ battles. The only element that I felt that I could find like a niche of my own was production because there was just nothing for producers, really. Um, so I said, you know what, let me jump into that lane. Uh, somehow I came up with the name Battle of the Beatmakers. Um, I don't even remember the exact story where it came from. Uh, 2004 is when the idea just started to materialize of having this competition. Now, there were battles in the U.S. I don't want to say like it was an idea that I just created out of nowhere. There were battles in the U.S. So my main influences for BBM was U.S. beat battles, reggae culture, the sound clash culture, um, and the DMC DJ battles to be specific. Um, so I would say those were the main three ingredients that kind of mm-hmm. pulled together to me putting Battle of the Beatmakers together. Just growing up hearing, because I grew up with a lot of reggae, a lot of dancehall, Kilimanjaro's, Bass Odyssey, a lot of the sound systems, the culture is just clashing, sound clash. So growing up hearing that, growing up with the DJ battles, and then um, DMC's battles to be specific in, in like the local area, and just putting that together and coming up with this idea of bringing that to Toronto. And mm-hmm. that's kind of the seeds of how BBM began. So like, did you have like like doubts or like, was there questions of like, what makes me qualify to do the Battle of the Beatmakers? Because sometimes mm. like, you would think that, you know, it would be a producer, a full-on producer right. that right. would have to know all the intricacies of right. putting that together. Or right. did you bring other people together that might have known those areas? Um, or were you coming at it like a promoter, I guess is what I'm asking? It was or a bit of co- both. Yeah. Like, till yeah. this very day, yeah. you can't have no deep production conversation with me. You'll lose me quick. Like, yeah. I've never got deep into software or deep into production beyond what I did at Trevis. Yeah. So I was more or less the organizer of it. I'll put it together and you guys do your thing. I'm not a master at no... Pro Tools, I'm not a master at FL Studio, none of that. You use some technical jargon right now and you'll totally lose me yeah. with production. So I was just playing the kind of like the architect role of I'll put it together and you guys do what you do. So it was me and my cousin who initially started it. He wasn't into production whatsoever. He was into fashion. But we connected with the studio over time called Sound Resolve Studios and they were technical. They had the engineering. So anything we needed to be done on stage, they did that. Anything we needed to do with sound check or we need Discord or that plug, that was them. That was their role. So in the early stages, Sound Resolve Studios and Saga um, and their studio was one of those places if the walls could talk because everybody ran through there in the early days. The Boy Wonders, everybody was through there in the early days. A lot of a lot of the like junior tees, the boy wonders, just a lot of a lot of the early early day stuff, eighty eight fingers and stuff like that. But it was just me, my cousin. We reached out to Urbanology as sponsors. They initially came on as sponsors of the battle, and then they ended up becoming judges for the battle because we didn't have judges for the battle. So we're just piecing this together. Okay, we need judges. You guys can you guys have a magazine that's reputable. Come on as judges. Um, my cousin hooked me up with a DJ in the area named Tab. All right, you're the DJ. Uh, there was a dude in the West End. He was representing the West End with this whole CD called West End Riders, which is like a compilation of all West End artists named Aristo. All right, you're going to host and just pull it together. Our first venue was in Mississauga, a small venue, because we re- I really didn't know what was 
what's the turnout of, of this gonna be? You know, mm-hmm. this is just raw. This is like there's no game so plan. In, in 2005, like was submissions are online or how did that work? Um, in 2005, uh, yeah, I believe they were online. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, obviously, yeah, we, yeah, people yeah, are yeah, online on yeah, the internet, yeah, all that type of yeah. stuff. Okay. So yeah, they were. So online. you guys pull out a call out. We put a well. Yeah. Project Bounce was the big thing at the moment. Okay. Um, that was like the go-to. Sp- you couldn't do any hip-hop without Project Bounce. That was the spot. As I always tell people, that was the Facebook and Twitter before social media because if there was beef in the city, that was the place it was getting aired out. If there was good stuff or bad stuff, that's where it was getting aired out, Project Bounce. So um, I connected with them, got some ads on there, which I voiced myself. And whatever we did, we struck a chord because the results, the feedback was great. Um, we didn't know what to expect. We were way out in Mississauga for the first venue. So I get there not knowing what to expect. And when it's time to open the doors, the promoter pulls me over. He says, yo, come outside for a minute. I come outside and the line is basically wrapped around the venue. Mm. You know, he never seen that before as the own, as the manager. I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, come to find out a lot of them were minors. So I don't remember ah. if we actively marketed it as 19 plus or not, but a large portion of the audience was minors. So that was an issue. We managed to get them in. If we didn't get them in, there probably wouldn't have been a Boy Wonder or none of that because most of the early battles were all 19-plus events. Wonder Girl was never supposed to be in the venues. Boy Wonder, T-minus. Wonder Girl was at that first venue? No, nah, no, nah, she wasn't there. I oh, mean, okay. la- years later. Oh, years later. Yeah, okay. she wasn't supposed to be in that venue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in the early days, Boy Wonder, none of them were supposed to be in the battles. Yeah. They were all minors. So, I mean, it's just a... Just a you know, the the club owners giving us that blight, letting us do it. Because otherwise, these names you hear now wouldn't have been what they were because they wouldn't have had the platform. So we managed Whole lives to, would have been changed. <laughs> Destinies lot, would have been changed. A lot in this city would have been changed, <laughs> really. A lot of would have been oh changed. Oh, my God. So, you know, it's just a matter of, of working with the club owners and letting us get... Just I don't even know exactly what made them go for it because they could have got shut down. True. Liquor license Yo, issues. thank you to those club owners, Right, man. right, Real right, talk. right, right, right. <laughs> So I don't know if they kind of seen the impact they had, but luckily they gave us that that opportunity to bring the minors in. No violence for 10 years. First 10 years, there's never been a fight in BBM that I know of. If you're listening to this, you'll most likely subscribe to the Come Up Show podcast. But if you're not, we're available on all platforms, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher Radio, or many more. If you have an iPhone, iPad, Mac computer, I'd really love and appreciate your rating and review of the Come Up Show podcast. It'll make a huge difference in the visibility of the podcast, which means more listeners and securing high-quality guests. Be a part of the growth of the Come Up Show podcast and give your boy a five-star rating and review. This is one of the biggest things you could do for the Come Up Show and it only takes a second. Click the link in the description below. Rate and review the Come Up Show podcast. I truly appreciate it. So that's 2005, the first right. Battle of the Beatmakers in right. Mississauga. Right. And um, March 2005 and uh, right. Boy Wonder was in that yes no? at this early yeah. point in bbm there was categories so we had the smooth category the party beat category and the grammy category um the grammy category grimy grimy okay, yeah okay, yeah okay. just because um you when i grew up earlier days hip-hop is usually main mainly three things you went to hear r&b hip-hop and reggae that's kind of like the ron nelson formula in the early days now it's a little bit different you got afro beats you got this you got that soca but it was pretty much those three elements you're going. If you're going to a hip-hop party, you're in hip-hop, reggae, R&B. So I kind of formulated the categories somewhat kind of around that. So grimy was the hardcore. We did was hip-hop or reggae, 
R&B is the smooth, and then you have the party stuff, which is usually like hip-hop. Um, Boy Wonder's main thing was party. So he won the party beat category. Uh, a brother named Giggs won the Grammy beat category, and Felony won the smooth party, the smooth category. So party category was kind of like the Missy Elliott, Timberland, just the clubby, chingy, that kind of sound. That was the that was the, and it was always a problem from day one of getting that to a science because what you consider smooth, I might consider party. What you consider party, I might consider grimy. So it was kind of subjective, but we tried to kind of follow that formula. Um, um, so Boy Wonder had the main thing with party with the party beat. Um, other producers were more based on samples, so they had those seventy Kanye samples that they there he's known for, just that kind of sound. Um, and then you have the hardcore boom bap, the Smith and Wesson, the MOP, the Wu Tang kind of sound. Mm. Um, and just on Boy Wonder's case, he could jump from to area, so he was known for party, but also grimy. So he was kind of had two specialties. Um, but his main thing was actually grimy. Over the years, like the first three years of his career. He was the grimy guy. You know what I mean? Like, his, what you hear of Boy Wonder from, like, 2010 on, like, we were at Opera House and all that, totally different dude than his battle days. His battle days was strictly hardcore, grimy, mob deep, MOP, Wu-Tang type of stuff. Mm. Um, so it was kind of funny for me to see him change or evolve from, like, the 2010 onward to what you have now. But his early days, grimy. Grimy. And yes. so there was... Does that mean there was three winners in that first one? There was one? three winners oh, okay. for the first... Yeah, for the first up until 20, 2007 because we did three battles the first year. Oh wow! Um, so that's why people get it confused when they say he won three years. He didn't win three years. He won three battles. Oh, okay. But they were all within two thousand and five. All right. March, May, and August. Because once we got the ball rolling, it's like, yo, we need another battle. So it's like the pressure was on because we didn't know what the first battle was gonna be. It ended up being a good result, so we had to follow up with something quick. So two months later, we literally had an, our second battle. Um, this time we moved it to Toronto, downtown Toronto. We still had the three categories. This time it's bigger, but we changed the time. So it was a daytime event, 5 to 10, which was a problem because doing an event in Toronto, especially in those days, if you weren't connected to certain people, you weren't getting a venue. So it's like you either had to take the bottom of the barrel or you just were getting shut out. So we didn't have those industry connections at first. We're just raw. Is that because... Club promoters or owners had a negative view of hip hop, or it was just a re relationship thing, or um, is it did hip hop have a bad name? All of the above. Yeah, had a bad name. Yeah, you know, shootings in the city, violence, the perception of violence, whether it's happening or not. Um, you're new on the scene, nobody knows you. You're a new promoter. You have no track record, no history. All those things came into play. You know what I mean? So you're going to venues, getting turned down. Um, this venue, I had to cut them. I kind of made a deal where it's like, okay, we'll do an earlier show so that your fear of violence is less. Because if you think if it's being from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. in the summer, it's pretty much still bright, closer to like 9 o'clock. So we figured, okay, we'll re remove all their fears. We'll have it in the daytime, 5 to 10, 10 o'clock, you can have your other party. You make twice the amount of money because you have two venues. You're keeping the bar. We figured it was a good deal. They win, we win. Unfortunately, we lost because we went way over time. So by the time we got to 10 o'clock, we weren't even halfway through the battle because we started a bit late. All the elements of hip hop were in it. But as a result of that, I pushed way past our time. And then the product, the battle itself ended up suffering as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So we got through like the party B category, which always went first. People wanted to kind of get that out the way because the Grammy was the main deal. Um, so we did the party B category. And for this second battle, we had a live component. So... 
I think there was give or take 16 in each category. And when it got down to the top two for each category, they had to make the beat live. So it's like, bring your CD. You can battle, get down, get down, get down to two. But when you get to the two finalists, we want to see you do it in front of us so we know you can actually do it. You didn't just jack someone's beat or whatever off the internet. Um, so we got that for the first, first party beat category. We didn't have enough time to do the smooth category that way, so we just ran it through CDs. Everything from CDs. We didn't get to do the live thing for the for the smooth beat. And by live, is this like what? Sound Resolve got us two laptops with FL Studio. So we basically set up two stations identical exact same software exact same samples exact same hardware and then shortly after that the guy that connected us at, at long and McQuaid actually passed and we had a heart attack but that's another story r.i.p to him um so we had a sh- battle the first battle in the party b category came to mr magic and boy wonder those are the only two that actually managed to do the live beat because the rest of them as i said we were short on time we didn't manage to get through the sm- smooth category and we didn't even get to start the grammy beat category 10 o'clock came they shut the place down and we were kicked out and we were just S out of luck, as they would say. But for those that made it to the live, which was Smooth, uh, Boy Wonder, and Mr. Magic, um, they had 10 minutes to make a beat live on the spot. So they're set up side by side. They didn't touch the hardware. They're just FL Studio Cats. So, again, it was a shift for me, too, because I'm coming up from the the keyboard, the MPC, the hardware days, and these guys are just straight software. So they didn't even touch none of the equipment that we had to go through hoops just to get. All they wanted was their laptop with FL. It was like, okay, that's what you guys use? Cool. Um, So they battled live. They both had 10 minutes to make the beat on the spot, took the beat, burned it on the CD, played it for the crowd live so everybody could see them making it right there and then, and the crowd chose Magic. So that was the first battle that was live between Magic and Wonder, and Magic won that one. Um, but this is the second battle. This is the that. second battle. Okay. But Wonder was in two categories. So he was in that party beat category, but he was also in the Grammy beat category that got cut. But we brought it online to Project Bounce and completed it there. The completion of that part two battle was actually live on the air at Project Bounce, just for the Grammy beat category to be, to be completed. And that's where Boy Wonder won that. That so happened live on the radio. That happened live on the radio, Project okay. Bounce. So when they say he won three in a row, he did win three in a row. It's just it's not the way people kind of understand it to be. Um, it wasn't year one, year two. Year. It was all one year. It was three battles, and it was a specific category. So the first one, he won a specific party beat. Second one, he won a specific grimy beat. And the third one, grimy as well. So mm. it was like party, grimy, grimy. He never jumped in the smooth. That was T-minus's lane. Because now you could just be in the comfort of your home and listen to it. So it's like BBM is starting to get out there. People are starting to hear about this movement. Yeah, that might have like it being live on Project Bounce right. gives them a real idea of right. what this is like. Right, like, right, right, right. Because it being a brand new battle, sh- uh, be the battle totally. of the B-makers, you don't, totally. you don't, it's kind of abstract to people. Like they don't, Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. Even years down the road, people yeah. are like, what's that? You know what I mean? <laughs> I remember giving out flyers the first first battle yeah people would look at it and just throw it away like beat battle what's a beat battle like just look at it off to the next you know what i mean so we're in may and it's like okay let's do one for august do one in the summer so we got a different venue because kind of was a bad taste in our mouth from the second venue that cut us off early i think this is t-minus's first battle Mm. big pop started to emerge at that battle the why not soundsmith again we didn't have a proper venue so the fourth battle which was the following year we kind of finally got that on track and that's when we got to El Combo. that was kind of our new home for for like three years so at this point um we're no at this point I needed a break because we're doing this like yeah, back to back three to times back in a year I just had my daughter was just born in the midst of this mm-hmm. so while I'm doing this battle I have a newborn at home 
um, and I had a stepdaughter who was four. So I'm like managing my family, managing two jobs. At one point, I was doing two jobs to fund this because this is all out of pocket. There was no financial yeah, sponsors behind. So how how was that happening? Because this is just uh, all the money that you're putting in there. Were you right. breaking even? Were you losing money? Um, for the I never first broke three even for. I mean, the budget was really low because we didn't have to bring in like your South Sides or Metro Boomin in those early days. This is all yeah. local, homegrown. But still, venue, DJ, you got to break them off something. Host, you got to break them off something. So it wasn't like thousands of dollars, but what it was, it was still coming out of pocket. There was no financial, nothing. Everything was out of pocket. As far as breaking even, probably not until like three, four years in it. The first three, four years is out of pocket. Mm-hmm. If you lose, you don't even care because you're just it's just out of the love of keeping it going, trying to keep the brand going. You, you get a little bit of success with the producers, so you're just trying to keep it going because as much as you love what you're doing, they're kind of relying on you because you're the only vehicle for them at the time. Platform. The only platform. So it's like, even if I wanted to fall back, I couldn't. They're just kind of pulling you back in because it's like, if they had like five different events going on for producers, that would have been one thing. They could have options, but we were the only thing for them. So it's almost like I couldn't just stop doing it. You know what I mean? You're kind of drawn back into it. So 2006, at this point, it's like a eight-month gap because we're used to, we're banging them out every two, three months. So now from August 2005, the following battle was until March 2006. So there was a gap, a little time to take a breather, chill for a minute. Um, but at the same time, we wanted to step it up. So that's when we I reached out to Wu-Tang. I was trying to connect. I was trying to get RZA to be involved somehow, either be a judge or just to give them the co-sign because in 2006, Toronto was... Toronto wasn't on the map at all. So everything we did, we were kind of looking for New York's approval. That's where Toronto was. Um, so I was trying to connect the greatness of Wu-Tang, which is like the pinnacle of hip-hop in my mind, um, and somehow connect that energy to BBM. So we couldn't afford RZA, but we got Mathematics, who was like, uh, he's like Meth and Red's DJ, but he's like, he's actually the person that created the Wu-Tang, the Wu-Tang logo. logo. You know what I mean? Yeah, so. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time, but then when I yeah. did some research on it, I was like, yo, this is a critical piece of this whole Wu-Tang thing. So, you know what? Let me reach out to him. Hit his manager up. He was cool. Got him over here, Was which, which was a good experience because that's my first time bringing an artist over. So, didn't have to deal with the big entourage, the ego, the crazy feed, the, the rider. more professional. Like, so, Very simple. Up on Vegetarian. Time. Didn't have to buy a bunch of food. You know <laughs> Vegetarian. Like he was cutting. Just co- give him some cost, spinach. Co- costs were, cut, <laughs> were being cut at every corner with him. Like there was no issue with nothing. He was That's just amazing. Cool. Um, so we brought him in just to give it that edge, just to, just to kind of raise the bar. Like it's not just a Toronto thing now. We're trying to like build a brand here. We're trying to do something different. Sarad El Macombo. Again, it's still kind of a grimy environment, the, the venue itself, but it kind of just fit hip-hop, because that's kind of where hip-hop comes out of, you know what I mean? It's not really that, not to say you can't do an event at Queen Elizabeth, for example, but hip-hop usually came out of those grimy kind of venues and events, um, and we kind of, it kind of fit. It was kind of, it's kind of a weird, it was kind of a good and bad thing. Some people kind of shunned it, like, ah, it's just that kind of venue, but at the other at the other end of it, it's like when, once you were there, you felt good. You know, you was you don't have to dress this way or dress that. You come as you are. You know what I mean? Just be yourself, and that's kind of the energy that we try to always kind of carry with BBM. So we did that two thousand March two thousand six. Um, the judges for it was Shaclair, which is like after the Mishimi Maestro. Um, yeah, and what's, ha- what's happening in Toronto music at this time as right. well too? Right. Like, yeah, like what's that environment like when you're what's surrounding the battle of the beaters? Um, there's a lot of, I mean, the artists yeah. at the time were like Tona. 
he was making noise with that song called Dial Tone. Dial Tone, yeah. Aristo was starting to come up because he was connecting with Boy Wonder. Mm-hmm. Hush, who was Young Tony at the time, Hush from OVO. Yeah. He had a song with Aristo. So he was hot. Young Tony was hot at the time. Slug, I think they were doing their thing. The whole SARS thing, I think was, I think it was around that time. It might have been a little bit before that. And when Cardi Hustle or no? Man was big. Mayhem Moriarty. Yeah. Point Blank was huge. Who you say Cardi? Cardi, yeah. Cardi was... Um, like, obviously, way before that time. Right. Cardi was before that, but he was yeah. still in the mix. He was yeah. definitely still in the mix. Um, he was kind of at a different level, though, because... Cardi was kind of like the... Well, after Bacardi slang and all right, that. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Which was the first album I ever actually bought from a Canadian artist, Bacardi mm-hmm. with, with Firestarter. But he was kind of in a different space. He was kind of like, not pop, but he wasn't on the ground anymore. Like, he was already gone. I'll, I'll put it that way. He mm-hmm. was he already made it kind of kind of like that. Yeah. So the street level scene, kind of, there was kind of a difference between Cardi and everybody else. Like, he was over there yeah. in his own lane and everybody else was still trying to come up. Um, so in 2006, that's pretty much where it was. All right. So let's bring yeah. it back to Elba Combo. How did that right. go? Mathematics. Mathematics was there. It was dope. This is the first performance where Drake actually performed as a rapper. Um, okay. So I didn't know Drake because I went to Western Collegiate, which he shouted out on, on his recent album, Western Road Flows. Went to school with early cats from Degrassi. But when I first heard uh, Drake, it was a song he did called Do What You Do. That boy wonder produce. Getting down tonight if they say you're cutting. A lot of dudes in my city, they ain't saying nothing. A lot of records from here, they get no play. And these labels don't give advances, so you get no pay. The little rims on the ride, I'ma let those stay. So these nosy niggas don't know that I get checks all day. What's the word fans keep trying guessing? My record ain't even finished, they keep trying pressing. Boy wonder and Drake if his beef I dress it. And Black Phantom is here as soon as B-side I exit. Both of the deals, nothing under a meal. We know you got it to give and we try to collect it. Long as I got me some heat through the winter. Drake known as a pro, I'ma teach you beginners. About to ink with a major like she's through a printer for features. Y'all better get me while it's cheaper than dinner. Oh, cause me and Wonder trying to get at your girl. If you see her tell her this niggas got some beats, I'ma sit up. At the time, Boy Wonder was more of the star hip-hop-wise in Toronto than Drake. Because people knew him as an actor, but he wasn't connected to hip-hop and people didn't know him as hip-hop. So on a street level, Boy Wonder was actually the star before we heard of a Drake. Um, so I heard this song that they had called Do What You Do and the beat sounds exactly like the hip-hop from the 80s. So I'm thinking that caught my attention, first of all. It's like, who's this dude that's bringing hip-hop back to the era that I grew up in? And I loved it. I was a fan of the song from day one, Do What You Do. That's the first time you heard, like, Wonder and Drake on the radio and stuff like that. So I'm hearing this song, and it's like, yo, Wonder, who's that artist you have on your beat, man? Can you come perform at the, at the battle? Um, so he shows up to the battle, um, get him to perform. Uh, he did a song with clips i'm kind of jumping around a bit but he did a song one of his performances was a song that he did with the clips i think the clips jumped on the remix so it was kind of funny recently when do what you do remix i think it it was either do what you do remix or it was another song that he had with the clips on it um which was kind of funny 10 years now later hearing him with that little beef he had with push a t a while back It it was weird to hear that because it's like i'm thinking of when you guys were starting out um but that's that kind of got him the cr- won him the crowd over because when he came to the venue, I basically just handed him the mic on stage. I didn't really know who he was, so it wasn't like 
he's a popular rapper in the city. Nobody knew who he was. Mm-hmm. So it was just like what, here. What was he like? Like what was he dressing like? Was he like a like a geek like from Degrassi? He was like, like button up shirt and like he was a or du- was he, he like was, he was a dude who you could I could sense he was new coming to a street kind of event. BBM was a very street oriented event. Like all the hoods came to BBM in those days. And the same stuff they're doing in the hood with something maybe on their waist. That's the kind of feeling you felt at BBM. Like somebody might have something on them. Something might go down. And it always had that air, that feeling in the air, like something could go down. Someone loses and he brought his whole block with them. It might be a problem. That was always the energy in BBM, you know, in the early days. But nothing happened. Nothing happened. (laughs) But he came, and he came with an like, boy, one that had a little entourage. So there was maybe 10 of them that showed up at the door. This tall guy shows up, light-skinned guy. So I gave him a pound, the traditional pound and, and, and hug. He was he was playing calm and cool, but I could sense he was a little bit like, what am I walking into here? You know what I mean? Just that kind of nervous environment. Um, but, you know, he was cool. He was a little shy when he came to the stage. Because um, I didn't actually give him a formal introduction, like, yo, here's Drake. I kind of just took the mic off the stand. And just handed it to him, like do what you do, what you do your thing, you know what I mean. So he was kind of a little nervous at first getting started. Um, I mean, this is on YouTube actually, this this performance. But okay, he, he was a little nervous at first, and then finally, because he did a freestyle to start it off, and in the freestyle he was naming everybody who was popping in the city. So he's naming like Julie Black, Mayhem, um, Apple, who we shouted out on on recent records, um, Regent Park, um, D10. Director X or Little X, um, so he's just going around naming everybody. I guess that was just, just trying to make him be familiar with the city, so they'll, they, you know, they kind of accept him in a in a way. Um, so he did the freestyle. He got some love from that, and then he jumped into the song with the clips on it. Did do what you do, and pretty much the rest was history. So that was in his verse, in his own freestyle. He said that was his debut performance. So that was kind of, I guess, his entrance as a rapper was on BBM stage. Um, and how did the crowd, the audience, receive him? Because, because, because this right. still is the Screwface capital of that time. Very at that time, it was very much that. Yeah, you had to be a, a hood dude to really come on BBM stage and rap and get respect to be straight. Because all the rappers that were coming on stage was the Mayhem's set two. I, I can't. I don't think he was in that year. Because they relate to the audience. They related to the audience, yeah, yeah. or they were the audience. They were the you know audience. I mean? they, were, they see the, themselves said, on stage. And that day, yeah. the whole. Producers were bringing their whole block with them. If you came from Jungle, you're bringing the whole jungle with you. You came from Jamestown, you came from Finch, you're bringing your whole block. Regent, you're bringing your whole block. Scarborough, same thing. Um, so, yeah, most of the rappers who got on stage were dudes that had their whole block with them. So they were, well, secured. He didn't have that. He didn't have, like, that street backing or anything like that. Um, it was just because he was cool with the producers. And Boy Wonder was the star producer at the time, so... With that circle, nobody was going to bother him. You know what I mean? Because everybody wanted to hear what Wonder was going to bring, so they're not going to mess with someone rolling with them. But we added a category for that battle. We actually added a, a sample category in honor of Jay Dilla, who just recently passed. Um, so it was the smooth, party, grimy, and now the remix category, where people were given the same samples. They had to remix the samples and bring it to the battle and play their remix version. So um, that was dope that we honored Jay Dilla like that. Um, had Wu-Tang involved. Drake's first performance had Shaw Claire, who was one of the pioneers in the city as a judge, had DJ Grouch, who was another DJ pioneer. So just to bring all that energy together, that was that's that was the look for 2006. Um, so it was a good look. Finally had a stage. So now you can see all the producers as they play their beat. You like them. You can reach out. You have a face to the beat now. It's not just someone I heard or I heard about. Now I have a face to every producer that I see and every producer that I'm hearing. 
And that's how a lot of networking started to begin in the city. So because um, prior to that, I don't think Wonder was really known that much. They heard of him because he was the hottest thing in the streets. But now you have a face to connect with this guy. Um, so that was that was the achievement for that battle. Mm-hmm. And that's in 2006. This is 2006. This is part four. OK, so what was the the, the, the battle that, you know, that really set off by Wonder that he didn't look back, that things start really happening for him? Um all Boy Wonder's battles were won in that first year. He hasn't, he didn't win beyond that first year, but his name carried from that first year. Really? The, the momentum that he built up in that one year, winning three battles back to back, you couldn't be a rapper in Toronto without having a Boy Wonder beat. It was pretty much at that level. So Everybody, whether you were point yeah. blank, whether you were from Rexdale, whether you were from Jungle, you had to have a Boy Wonder beat. That was pretty much the standard. Mm-hmm. Um, so his he he, he kind of became like folklore after a while. So it's like even though he wasn't winning in two thousand six or seven or eight, his name was already gone. I think the thing that did it for him specifically was when he did this. Well, city is mine, and do what you do were big for Toronto and for Drake. So that whole the whole OVO thing started to form in in that same time period, like two thousand and five, I believe, is when Drake first met Forty, Drake first met Boy Wonder. So all the players for OVO kind of started to merge at the same time that BBM was coming together, 2005. Um, so as that kind of movement started to build up, Boy Wonder's movement started to build up. He's putting out records for Point Blank and all the local rappers. So his name is just kind of growing under control. 2007, this is the battle he did with Arthur MacArthur. Again, didn't win. We need to hear about that. Like, right. expand on that story right, right there. Right, right, Arthur MacArthur. Right. Arthur MacArthur was a heavyweight. He came out of nowhere. He, yeah. He's a part of an, a collective of the Mississauga called Northern Prophets okay. with Big Pops. And I think they had an extended crew that was like every producer in Saga, really. I think Rich Kid was in it, Junior T. I think there was, I can't remember, Western Union, I believe it was called or something like that. So it was like an extended Mississauga collective of like all the hottest producers out there. But I think within that collective, there was a smaller group was just like Arthur, Big Pops, and a few others. We already knew Big Pops at that point because he was already starting to make his name. But we never heard of Arthur MacArthur. So they were matched up to go against each other, Boy Wonder and Arthur MacArthur. So Boy Wonder is like, he's almost looking at it like a joke. Like, who's this little white kid? Kind of looked weird. He had a, he just looked. He was an unusual. Like he looks like a Jesus, like Jesus Christ, basically. Much, it looks like like a much. white, white bearded guy. Right, like right. people, when you see Arthur MacArthur, right. you wouldn't think this is the guy who right. produced for Rick Ross right. or these other people, right? Right, right, like, right. And then definitely yeah. not a guy you would see in a beat battle. Yeah. So him showing up and being on stage it was almost just a spectacle, just to, just like wow, this is who Wonder's going against. Hardly home, but always repping. You hardly own it, always second. When I'm awake, you always resting. And when they call you to answer, you a hardy question. I, I'm doing classic shit in all my sessions. Other niggas situations, they are all depressing. That's why I never follow y'all suggestions. I just always did my own thing. Now I run the game. They both played their beat. Boy Wonder kind of played the beat like, okay, let me just throw a beat out there just to get through the round. This is going to be easy. I'll just throw this out there and and then bring my heat for the later rounds. But Arthur pretty much almost killed him. Until this day, it's kind of debatable whether he won or not. Um, So that happened. Everybody was kind of like, wow, what just happened? So the judges are like, they kind of scored at a tie. I think they were kind of caught off guard too, and they wanted to see another round just to be sure that it is what it is. So they kind of scored out a tie, went to a next round. Boy Wonder dropped a beat called Transformers, and that just flattened the place. 
he basically sampled a sample from the 80s TV uh, cartoon, the, the Transformers. And then he put like these crazy drums and a bass line. It, it basically shaked, shook the building. Like you were just like, wow. The judges were just in awe. You know, we're just standing there like, damn. <laughs> um, but the unfortunate thing was that was his heaviest beat for the night. So he was so intimidated by almost getting his ass kicked by MacArthur that he had to pick his hardest beat right just away. to make sure he got through that round. Yeah. Totally screwed his whole game plan up. Uh, um, so that got him through the round. He beat MacArthur. Crazy beat. Yeah. But he ran out of steam because he played his beat just to get through that. I think that was like the first round. So by the time he got to like third, fourth round, he was done. So he lost to, I think, Giggs that battle. Um, so boy one that beat Arthur MacArthur but he lost the next yeah, round against he had to Giggs. play his hardest beat because usually people come with different strategies like okay yeah. I'll play this beat just to get through this round I'll save this heavier stuff for the later round but if you get, if you lose the first round you don't get a chance to make it to the later round exactly. so people come with all different kind of strategies on how to try to do it and he just miscalculated that one severely yeah. so he lost and it's that like, battle you know, it's like because um, I've been the battle the beat makers it's not only like I have the best technical beat or the best sounding right. beat. You have to take uh, into play the audience's right. Right. Uh, reaction, right? Because right. it's not only the judges. Totally. The judges and the c- criteria also takes into part of how right. the audience right. reacts to the beat. Right, which totally. Is, which is like a wild card. Right, totally. So, yeah, he didn't know what he was jumping into. Um, and you can never judge a producer by appearance. That was a lesson learned. <laughs> Don't judge him by appearance, what you heard or didn't hear or anything like that. Go in there like this is going to be a guy that's trying to kill you and just have that mentality. So that almost happened to him. He didn't make it through that ra- that round, didn't make it through that battle. But again, his his he was already on that trajectory. Like Boy Wonder was already out there. Um, the next year they came back. Uh, actually, for that battle, that was the last battle where they had categories. After that battle, we scrapped the categories altogether. And it was every man for themselves, which is what it is today. 2008 was the first year that we just scrapped categories, and now it's everybody for themselves. 32 producers, one winner, and that's it. Um, so Wonder actually never went to a battle where there was 32 guys. He always went into a category, so it was a little easier because you only have like 8 or 12 guys to battle. Whereas in 2008, now you've got to kill 31 other people to win. Um, so for this year, he was starting to blow up. He dropped a song with Carter now called Set It Off, the remix. We had Dr. Dre on it. And clips. Big turning point. Big turning point for, yeah. for for BBM, for Boy Wonder, for Toronto. That was a total game changer. point boy i mean uh dr dre is like he's like a god in hip-hop in this time period like 2000 like it's i was almost surreal to think like dr J would even 
hear of a Toronto artist, much less jump on your song. Mm-hmm. So to have... Was there two versions? One with Dr. Dre? Because there is one with the clips, right? Or is it... Set it off? Yeah, there's um, a set it off featuring the clips. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. I believe you're right. Yeah, yeah like because yeah. I remember I the clips right, 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 on right. a Not For Sale album. Right, right. I believe you're right. I never... I can't... I don't remember that vividly, but I do believe yeah. they were on that. There might be like a Dr. Dre on that. Right. Or maybe another one with just Dr. Dre. Or the beat got... Might have been two versions of right it. Yeah, yeah right right but um that was that was a total turning point that was even a point for me like i had to step back after that like wow this is a thing that just started off locally just toronto producers and now you have a local producer from bbm on a track with dr dre that kind of like had me i had to sit back and kind of reevaluate like where is this really going like i never seen it getting to that kind of stage you know what i mean like having doc we're just thinking toronto terms like our mind is like just if we can make something successful in Toronto, that's where we were at in that early period. We didn't see like anybody becoming a big superstar. We definitely didn't see a Drake. We definitely didn't see uh, Grammy Awards. We definitely didn't see platinum records. That was the furthest thing from our mind. And this time period, all we're thinking of, if we could get these producers to be popular in Toronto, popular across Canada is icing on the cake. That's as far as we've seen at this point. Yeah, because if you can get them popular in Toronto, then they maybe they're getting they're getting uh, work. Right. Right? right, if Boy Wonder is getting hollered at by every rapper in Toronto, right. then he's getting some change right. in his right. pocket from other rappers. Right. And that's just... as far as we've seen. If we can get yeah. that, we were content with that. But Drake, Dr. Dre jumping on Cardi's remix, that just totally changed the game. It was like, whoa, this is way bigger than us, and this is way bigger than our expectations. Um, so at this point, instead of him being in the battle, we brought him on as a judge for the battle. So this is the first time he's actually a judge of the battle in 2008. So Boy Wonder... Even though he lost in 2006, 2007, he was already blowing up regardless of winning or losing. And was he kind of unhappy, cheesed, or mad at you guys for losing a couple of years in a row? Let's be um, honest. Because if you're the guy, if you're right, that guy and you're right. losing at Battle of the Beatmakers, right. you're like, I mean, yo, what's going on, Cliff? Personally, he probably felt... Yeah. He probably felt away for sure. Like, he... Because his reputation was out there. Yeah. So, he, personally, he probably had to deal with that struggle. I mean, there's not much I could do. I wasn't a judge. I made it very clear from day one. I'm not going to be a judge because I don't want that pressure of being that person that, oh, it was because of you I lost. So I removed myself from that. It's like, okay, these are the judges. I'll organize it, but you guys are the judges. You guys take care of that stuff. So it was not really nothing he could come to me, really. Um, If you lost, you lost. You had the same exact opportunity as this guy to win. So, um, but as I said, because he was already on that path, he was already gone. It didn't really hurt him. It was actually just propelling his name. Like, yo, you heard of that battle? This guy won Beat Boy Wonder. His name was out there. Even years later, when we give out flyers for a battle, like, yo, I remember last year I heard Boy Wonder lost to this guy. Or Boy Wonder beat, like, the name was already out there. Anytime we gave out flyers, that's the first thing you would hear. Yo, who's battling Boy Wonder? Who beat Boy Wonder? You know what I mean? So his name was kind of like folklore in a way. But anyway, what we did, we brought the three judges from previous winners so rick notes who was a three-time winner Giggs, who was a two-time winner and boy wonder who was a three-time winner so instead of having to go and get like a shot clear which was still cool or mathematics we just did it in-house so we took the three kind of like the cream of the crop from bbm previous winners and made them the judges these are dudes that were in the battle they know exactly what it takes to win the battle they went through it whatever it is to do in a beat battle they went through it firsthand so um, we put them as the judges. On top of that, we also had a grudge match for the MacArthur one because people still weren't satisfied with that previous battle. A lot of people were like, no, you guys were biased. MacArthur won. That that was it. Some people were like, nah, Wonder won. 
with Transformers. So it's like that wasn't settled. That was still in the air. So it's like, okay, we're going to, even though he's a judge, we're still going to have a grudge match and bring MacArthur into battle. So MacArthur didn't have to go through the battle. It was just after the battle. He was just going to battle Boy Wonder as a bonus for people who came to spec- be spectators. Um, so the battle was over. Big Pops is crowned. The first winner to win 32 uh, no, sorry. Rick Notes was the first one to win the first 32. Big Pops was the second one to win the 32. But after the battle, MacArthur shows up. Wonder is there. He's standing on stage waiting to go. So we finally brought clarity to this rematch, this grudge match. Um, it wasn't as amped as the first one. Um, and it's still unclear who won. People are still, to this mm. day, it's still, it's never been totally settled. But as a result of that grudge... When Wonder started to blow up, he was on the So Far Gone mixtape with Drake. He reached back and pulled MacArthur up with him. So they collaborated to do the Uptown song on So Far Gone. So that's kind of a bright end to the story. Like, okay, they battled. They came up battling each other. There's that grudge match to kind of like good energy, bad energy. But they brought it back together and actually made a big hit out of that. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's interesting the stories that have come out of BBM and just what has grown out of it you know what i mean because you might have bought or downloaded the cd and not knowing the background story to like how this stuff came together and that's just one of those things these guys grew up battling each other and next thing you know they're co-producing a big song now arthur MacArthur's doing what he did with rick ross and stuff like that wonders doing what he's doing um and those are like the basic steps of how that came together so uh and and then a lot of these things that you discuss are in this book all of that. Tell yep. us about the book right. a little bit. Um, so the book is pretty much walking you through kind of what I walked you through, just in more detail from 80, even from when I first was born, like what I what I was growing up listening to, like before hip hop, like the R&B stuff, the, the James Brown, the Temptations, Earth, Wind & Fire, um, the sound that formed my musical taste buds. And then coming to Toronto and just experiencing hip hop in Toronto from day one, 82, 83, when it first popped off. Um seeing all the radio stations evolve, seeing the Mishimis, Maestros, Dream Warriors evolve, going to parties with these guys, seeing them on stage, seeing them at talent shows, um, going to school with the dudes from Degrassi High, just absorbing this whole hip-hop culture, being seeing it firsthand, the early rap battles, the early DJ battles, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the street stuff, the school stuff. So, uh, and, and then a lot of these things that you discuss are in this book. All of that. Tell yep. us about the book right. a little bit. Um, so the book is pretty much walking you through kind of what I walked you through, just in more detail from 80, even from when I first was born, like what I what I was growing up listening to, like before hip hop, like the R&B stuff, the, the James Brown, the Temptations, Earth, Wind & Fire, um, the sound that formed my musical taste buds. And then coming to Toronto and just experiencing hip hop in Toronto from day one, 82, 83, when it first popped off, um, seeing all the radio stations evolve, seeing the Mishimis, Maestros, Dream Warriors evolve, going to parties with these guys, seeing them on stage, seeing them at talent shows, um, going to school with the dudes from Degrassi High, just absorbing this whole hip-hop culture, being seeing it firsthand, the early rap battles, the early DJ battles, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the street stuff, the school stuff, um, and just... A, just what so it's basically me walking you through my 30 years of Toronto hip hop as I see it 
not in a biased way, but just this is this is what it is. This is what it was going on in Scarborough from what I seen. This is what was going on when I went to Jungle. This is what was going on when I went to Jane and Finch. This is what was going on when I went to Weston with Mishy Me and stuff. And just walking you through the story of my shoes and then how that evolved into becoming BBM and the success stories of BBM and what you have today, kind of how everything just comes together. I often find two things. Number one, people don't know much about Toronto prior to Drake. They know about Drake, and it's like, that's it. It's like before Drake, after Drake. Pretty much. B-D-A-D. Pretty much. You know <laughs> what I mean? And it's like, so that's one thing. They just don't know or don't care. So I wanted to kind of put that together. And then on another hand, it's producers themselves hitting me up. Like, one thing with me and the producers in the city, I kind of was the architect of putting BBM together, and they would see me at the battles, but I've never really been a big industry person. So people never really got a chance to connect with me because I wasn't really in the clubs. I started going to clubs when I was 13. So you got to think, by the time we got to BBM, I'm almost 30 years old. I, got, I, I almost did 20 years of all that club and partying. So by the time BBM come, came around, I've already lived that party life. So they didn't really see me out much. It's like, okay, this guy does the battle. I'll see him next year. And that's kind of how it was for producers. So they never really had a chance to bond with me because they only see me when a battle pops up. So they have questions for me. It's like, well, how did Wonder connect with this one? How did T-minus do this? How did Drake? They don't have the answers to that. So one producer in um, particular was Jordan Manswell. He's one of the few producers that I actually had a conversation with. And Jordan didn't come on the scene until like 2013, 2014. So you can imagine that's almost 10 years that I never really had a chance to bond with anybody, all these producers, even though I helped them because they never really, you know, I wasn't in the club with them. They were looking for mentorship, for guidance, right. how to navigate in, right. This, right. in the city and like right. and uh, like do what Boy Wanda did. Right, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And he was the only person that I actually sat down. The thing with producers, they don't tell you nothing until the song comes out. Yeah. So there's that kind of unspoken code. They don't mention it. They're tight-lipped until the song comes out because they don't want to say, I'm doing this, doing this, and then the song never comes out. Mm -hmm. So he's probably working with more people than we can imagine, but you won't know until it comes out. Um, But he's the winner of 2014. So he's the first producer I actually sat down with and actually broke down the story of how BBM emerged and what was going on and what it took to put together and what it still takes to put together. He was the only producer that I actually had a long conversation with, breaking it all down. And it was in talking to him that was like, you know what? It would make sense to just put this in a book that they could access all of this all in Ah, one. You know what I mean? He was kind of like, if I was to to zero in on a, a producer, he would be the one that actually gave me that green light that you know what this is actually a good idea just to put this in a book in a format that they can all easily digest it at their own pace you know what i mean other than asking me a question here randomly or a question there randomly or a tweet here randomly just here this is the whole story do what you're going to do with it you know mm-hmm. what i mean so and, we, and journal men's well just to say he's produced for daniel caesar i knew i right. saw that name daniel right. caesar darren falana uh jay soul right uh yeah lee right uh and so on and so forth right uh, yeah, uh, and I was I was actually curious about that as well too, Clifton, because you're around, you're seeing this talent of producers before anybody else, right? right? And when you when you think about uh, Boy Wanda, T minus, all these talent, I was wondering like if you ever thought of, like, hey, I should be starting a production label or right. management or any of these. There things. is so many things that coulda, woulda, shouldas. Um, yeah. Not even coulda, shoulda, woulda. Like right. this is a thing. Like, cause they're all successful now. It's right. all clear. Did you even have the interest in doing it in, in, in yourself? Um, yes and no. Yeah. Um, 
No, in the sense that I didn't know all the 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 particulars like copywriting, publishing, royalties. I didn't know any of that in the early days. So even when we were documenting this stuff, like we videotaped all our early three battles, but I didn't know about copywriting and getting clearances. So we recorded it, but we had a lot of background music. You might have heard a Mary J. Blige song in the background while we're filming. So Universal had hit us up to distribute the DVD, but it's like, do you guys have clearances for everything? No. <laughs> you know what I mean? We didn't know anything about that stuff. So... In hindsight, there's probably stuff we could have cleaned up, but in the spirit of it, it was like, you know what, we weren't really thinking that big because in 2005, 2006, when we did the documentary, we had no idea there was going to be a Drake. We had no idea there was going to be a Grammys and all that stuff involved. We, at the time when we made the documentary, it was just a Toronto thing. You know what I mean? So I didn't think of, let me get all this paperwork in, in play because we're going to blow up five years from now or there's going to be producers that are going to blow up five years. We didn't see that. So it was like... We ended up keeping it on a DVD level, which was the hot thing back then, DVDs, smack DVDs and all that stuff. So we just put it out on a street level, on a DVD level. Had we known what we know now, then surely we would, could have did certain things differently. Um, but to answer as far as managing producers and stuff like that, in the early days, no, just because, as I said, we didn't see where Toronto was heading to that degree or where it is now. Um, there was no way of... Because I'm coming from a time where... You're just dealing with maestro, like one artist in like a 10-year span who has a little bit of, has a couple songs that are making a little bit of noise in the U.S. You have Bacardi, has a couple songs making noise in the U.S. You have Shaclair making a little bit of noise. But for the most part, Toronto is an unknown city. They don't understand. They don't think black people live here. They think we're still in the igloos. They have all these wild con conceptions of Toronto. So we as a city weren't really proud of ourselves. Like nobody was wearing no Toronto hat in 2005. You know what I mean? Like the city didn't really feel comfortable in its own skin in 2005, 2006. We were still production wise copying Dre, copying Timberland, copying Neptune, copying RZA. We were trying to mold our sound after them that set the groundwork for production, DJ Premier, Pete Rock and what have you. So we didn't have our own voice. We didn't have our own sound. We didn't have a clear direction where this was going. We were just kind of feeling our way through it. So to to have signed a bunch of producers at the time, it it didn't really make sense from a financial point of view. Like, what would be the point of that? I'm going to sign a bunch of guys and they're going to make noise in Toronto. And like, we didn't really see the vision, the bigger picture of that. So there was no, there was no, none of that. There was other people that- it was unprecedented. It never happened. Totally, totally. So we were just in the, in the groove of it. We're in the, it's like you're in the process of a birth, but you don't see the baby come out yet. You know what I mean? So we're just going through that period. And that's pretty much where it was. So there was a lot of things. It made it a lot easier for someone to come after and capitalize on that because they didn't have to do that grunt work, but they can now see the potential of where Drake is going or where Boy One is going. So now they could jump in and say, like, yo, let me sign the next three hot producers or the, B or the BBM or the Toronto now that the set is, the stage is set. But for us who were kind of like building that platform, no, nah, we didn't really see. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the was that also apparent in the style of the producers and not only that were people coming out like with the turnout good because the 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 idea was unique like it, it was like a novelty or because i totally understand mm -hmm. what you mean of uh because i i did a radio you know show since right. 2007 right. and when i'm i'm promoting canadian hip-hop right my my friends and people don't want to did, did i get the f out of right. here they want to right. listen to jay-z right like you totally. know when i say yo i'm playing this right. no right no right 
So that's obviously starting to change now. Right. So tell me more about that of like well, people like us looking to the big brother US and right. that. You know, well, first confidence. of all, as yeah. I said, the first album I ever bought from a Canadian artist was Cardinal's Firestarter. So yeah. I hired about a decade of Toronto hip hop that I would never pay for because it didn't match up to, as you're saying, the Jay-Z's and stuff like that. That was the benchmark. You had to live up to like the Jay-Z level or Wu-Tang or Mob Deep or something like that. So as again, Toronto wasn't really comfortable in skin, in its shoes, in a sense. So um, as far as us, I mean... Even in 2005, our second battle, we had an artist from New York, or Jersey, I should say, came up. And he was talking in, in terms of, I'm going to come here, take you Canadian producers, make a bunch of songs with you guys, and bring it back to New Jersey so they can hear who you guys are to help them, help you guys kind of get out there. Um, we had one producer actually flew in from Florida to, to battle in the second battle as well. Um, but for the most part, it was just a, it was just stuck in Toronto. Um, we didn't really start to make, to really get out there until 2010 when we um, went to Opera House. Um, we had Nina who flew from Amsterdam, a female flew from Amsterdam and won. Um, that's when you first did that, that, the first coverage with Boy Wonder and all that. Um, but that's when it was like, okay, this is not just a Toronto thing anymore. Because as he blew up, Boy Wonder blew up. Everybody who did the research and traced it, they traced it back to us. So they expected us to kind of, it's almost like he's up here, so you guys kind of got to grow with him. So it's kind of like a weird pressure situation. Um, whereas you're trying to build up a movement to get them a platform, and now he's gone, and you're trying to keep this movement, but you can't keep it on the same level El Macombo anymore because now he's like blowing up. So you kind of got to raise your profile. profile as he's blowing up. Um, and it was it was a very weird dynamic because first of all there was never a Toronto producer that blew up like beat battling in Toronto. Um, early producer there's there's a lot of early producers from Main Source to the Gadgets to Grassroots, but none of them blew up. Like there was never been a celebrity producer out of Toronto before. Even though there's been producers that made hits and stuff, the spotlight has never been on a producer. It was always on the rapper or the rap group. Um, so now you're having a total change of the guard where producers are becoming the celebrities. When artists used to be mentioned on certain blog sites and stuff like that, like Hip Hop Canada, say that for one, they always mentioned the artist and they mentioned the name of the song. BBM was influential in making them also include the producer. So it's this producer song, printed. this is the name of the song, and produced by. You know, I don't want to take all the credit, but I know for a fact BBM had a... Uh, uh, influence in that happening so they started to add the producer the producers became kind of stars in their own right so you might not know the artist but you heard boy wonder produce it i'm checking for it you don't know the song big pops or t-minus produce it i'm checking for it you know and it kind of became that dynamic so s producers were becoming celebrities in their own right the new york influence is definitely there um even when Boy Wonder was starting to blow up, there's still a lot of U.S. cats making noise. But it just became a lot of U.S. artists now checking for Toronto. Fast forward to like 2011, I remember Staly, artist from Maybach Music, coming up here, being a judge and a performer. And he was like, yo, connect me to Wonder and T-minus. You know what I mean? Like he's a Maybach artist who has access to thousands of producers. And he's coming up here and the only thing he's telling me about, yo, get me in the studio with Minus and Boy Wonder. It's like, wow. Okay. So there's a change. There was a total changing of the guard. For me, that was a big deal. Because as I said, I'm coming from going to school with Mishimi, where it's like the biggest thing for them was to have a song. She did a song back in 80, 
six or eighty-seven with KRS-One, which was the cosign, that stamp of approval that we all wanted from New York. Anything we did, we wanted that stamp of approval from New York. So to have it change, where now U.S. artists want to come here and they're looking for our producers, it's like wow, you know what I mean? Just to see that was a total changing of the guard. So that was that was probably one of the most interesting things of just seeing and still seeing how that's changing. You know, it's not just the wonders, but now the murder beats and the navs and you can you could sit here for hours and name all the producers out there that are making noise mm-hmm. from Toronto um but in those early formative years it was definitely heavily influenced by New York what do you think it is about Toronto that we have some of the best producers in the world mm. what is it about the city what's as you know people would say or Americans would say what right. is in the water in right. Toronto right right um i think for one it's a change just something different because um, we bring a very diverse, it's not, we have so much influences, like the Afro, like I always tell people, it's so easy for Drake to make a one dancer controller, because that's what we hear. You hear Caribbean, you hear Afrobeat, like I grew up with African music, my pop's from there, I grew up with, uh, my step family's from the islands, so I have, I grew up hearing soca, calypso, reggae, African, Afrobeat, high life, hip hop, soca, R&B, like I grew up hearing everything. You know what I mean? So that's a part of my musical taste. So if I was a producer, that all would be combined in it. To this day, I, I'm, I'm still trying to find a producer that can mix Afrobeat or African sounds with hip-hop in a nice way. Till this day, I'm trying to find that. But um, I just say that we, we, we're a lot more diverse than Atlanta, which is kind of like white and black. You know what I mean? Which is cool, but I don't think they have the diversity that we have, and it comes out in their music. Like what you, what you're involved, what you're surrounded by is kind of what influences your music. If you're in Jamaica, obviously you're gonna make dancehall because that's what is all around you. So, if you're in Atlanta and all us around you is like like white and black, like two simple cultures, and that's all that's really influencing your sound, then the kind of that's what you produce. You know, if all you hear is trap around you, then that's what you produce. If all you hear is West Coast gangster stuff and you're from L.A., that's what you produce. But with here, we have so much different influences. Someone just came from Nigeria. Someone just came from Trinidad. Someone just came from Venezuela. And they bring all that culture with them and it creates a different sound. So then some something like One Dance becomes like, you can do that blindfolded. You know what I mean? Because you're just, that's, that's what you grew up hearing. Mm-hmm. Controller, that's like a no-brainer. That's easy stuff for someone like Drake to do. Um, Tory Lanez, you know, they got their versions. It's like... That's just easy for us because we're around all of that so much. So I think that is what they're kind of looking for. Um, they kind of bit like the the Caribbean, the, the Jamaica stuff. A lot of them are running with that wave like because they've seen the Bieber success. They've seen Tory's success, Drake's success. Um, they don't really understand our connection to the Caribbean in different places. They think we're just copying or we're biting, but they don't understand we're just that diverse it's just a diverse city you know what i mean and mm-hmm. americans really don't understand that because i was just in la and they still ask like wow you guys got black people up there <laughs> like they still Ignit. don't get it you know what i mean it's like wow but i think also that's another thing for toronto just to jump on another thing i think we need our own boys in the hood our own menace to society not in a negative way but we need like movies that speak to our culture so that they know what a 401 is they know what a young street is they know what uh Malvern is you know what I mean just like how we know what Long Beach is in Cali and we know what Compton is and Crenshaw is or in Brooklyn we know what Brownsville is they need to know not just our music but they need to see it visually what the culture of Toronto is right now they're just getting like sound bites you know what I mean of what Drake says or what Tory says or the new cast like Presser said but they need to see the visual picture that goes with this sound and the diversity I think that's the one thing 
that we need that kind of will put us out there that they they they, they feel the whole culture not mm. just hear a little music like a tv show or a movie right like a tv show. Right. I, have you familiar with top boy from uh the uk yes kano's in yes. it and yes. yeah, yeah like yes. something like that right right when uh when, when you see that you're like yo they talk right. like us exactly and i was surprised yeah. i just caught top boy like Less than a month ago, I just I just seen that, yeah, and I was like, wow, these guys really sound exactly like us, man. Other than the, what do they call that? The, the Cutney, what yeah, just the Cockney, Cockney, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Other yeah. than that, it's yeah. just like Toronto talk, um, like farm and like fam, like all, all of that. those things, exactly. Yeah. So it's like I think that's what Toronto was missing. They just need that visual piece to go with the songs that we're hearing. Mm. I think that'll kind of cement that we are here. We've been here for a long time, and this is why we sound the way we do, and this is the way we are. This is a culture okay. up here. So uh, our multicultural influence that right. we have is uh, an asset Big time. to us. It's what's Big time. making us Big time. Yes. one of the, some of the best. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, um, how does... Uh, how does and, and also, just to yeah. add on that, Keep just to shift, yeah, yeah. because yeah. East Coast had their turn. They created it. Yeah. West Coast jumped on it. They did their thing. South did their thing. What else? Where else could it go? You know what I mean? I think it has to come up north at some point. And then there's some people that are in the conspiracies and all that. That's what do another. you mean? I mean, there's some people. <laughs> what conspiracy? There's there's this. Like, in the 80s, I'll say this. Okay. There was the public enemy wave. There was the brand Nubian public enemy X-Clan. There was that conscious wave in hip-hop. N.W.A. shut that down with their gangster stuff. So that's when I say the conspiracy people who feel like it wasn't by chance that NWA came up. It was designed to kind of shut down the East Coast, what uh, they were coming you with. You hear about these white guys in corporate offices right. who design, right. who said hip-hop right. is going to be under our control right. and like right. so on and so forth. So it's, it's one thing to say yeah. that the West Coast just came out of nowhere, but it's yeah. another thing if it's a, a bigger plan or a bigger scheme going on that created that. And then from the West Coast, it goes down t- to the South. So you could, you could say that, well... The West Coast, people were getting tired of that. So Lil Wayne was that hot and the Hot Boys were that hot and No Limit and Cash Money were that hot that they just took the wave from them or Outkast took the wave from them. And that's cool. Maybe that's so. You know, obviously Three Stacks is a dope rapper and the Dungeon family was big. Um, But then there's another way to look at it and say, well, maybe it was a bigger picture that wanted to take that power and bring it to the South and and give it the wave that it's on right now, the trap wave. Um, and there's another another force that could say, well, they want to do the same thing with Toronto. Now they want the tide of that south. Now they want a different coast or a different location or region to get the carry the torch. And now it's our turn. So either it's by natural or by higher powers that are doing it, it is what it is. But, you know, everyone has a different perspective on how mm-hmm. things evolve. Do you think it is our time right now? It's right now, like, because as you said earlier, like, you didn't know... When when you're in the actual moment, you don't know you're in the moment. Right, right, right. Are we in the moment right now? Obviously, there's a lot of attention from Drake's and like a lot of artists are coming out. But is this? Are we gonna look back ten to fifteen, twenty years from now and say, "Yo, this was our time"? I don't think you actually know it when you're in it. I don't think you actually realize it when you're in it. I don't think when um, only in hindsight. Right. Yeah. I don't think because it would kind of never end because you would always be still trying to create. Like I don't think when Doctor when Death Row was at their pinnacle i don't think they foreseen pocket and killed and them losing their momentum i think when they were in it they just you know what i mean they're doing their thing but you don't think like yo this is our greatest time right now next year pocket is going to be gone death row is going to be gone like you don't really see it while you're in it you know what i mean um bad boy you know they're doing the thing biggie's doing his thing they didn't foresee that yo next year biggie's gonna be gone 
and the whole change is, the whole dynamic is going to change. We're going to lose hip hop. It's going to go out west. Like they didn't see all that because you're in it. You know what I mean? Rock Nation, Rockefeller. They didn't know that Ether was going to come and change their whole game plan. You know what I mean? But that one song changed their whole game plan. People's true colors started to come out. Friendship started to go sideways. But you can't see it when you're in it. You're just in it in the moment. Next thing, someone drops a song, boom, changes your whole game plan. So for answer your question, I don't really, I think we're still in it. We won't know if tomorrow Drake doesn't continue rapping and he just jumps into like acting or something like that. You know, we don't know. You know what I mean? So it's hard to it's hard to foretell and to give clear answers on that kind of stuff. It's just speculation because we really don't know what's going to be popping three years from now. I've heard people say that the UK is up next. So if the UK is up next, what does that mean for us? You know what I mean? Are we just going to get shut down? Are we just going to play backseat to that? Um, are we going to be involved with that rising of the UK? It's hard to say. Mm. Um, but on the bright side, I do see a lot of other producers like Murder Beats coming up. I see the Navs coming up. Um, the artists in the city that are getting some shine like uh, Pressa and those guys so there's a lot of other names that are popping up so every time you see new names popping up it's a good feeling because you feel like the legacy is continuing it's not stuck at just Drake OVO it's like okay so there's a Pressa guy and he's getting shine there's a Murder Beats and he's doing this stuff with Migos he's getting shine there's a Nav doing a, a, a tape with Metro he's getting shine so it's like the scene is still growing you know, uh, XO is signing artists, so you see different things going on. So it kind of makes you feel good that Travis not, Scott is here working with right, Wonder Girl and like right, you know always right, like looking right, for the next artist. Right. So that that feels good because you know that it continues. It's going on. It's not just limited at a certain level. Um, but at the at the same time, you can never foretell what tomorrow is going to be. We just kind of live it while we're doing it. Put your hundred percent in it, um, and try to stay true to what you do. I think, uh, and briefly, let's talk about the Wonder Girl story mm -hmm. because obviously, so uh, t tell us a little bit about her and how she came about. Right. Yeah. Um, Wonder Girl, she came in, her first battle was 2011. Um, first of all, there's not a lot of females that were into battles. The first one is, she goes by the name of She the God, NJ at the time, and she goes by She the God. She's the first female that ever entered the BBM battle. There's probably like a handful of females that ever been in the BBM. She the God, um, CT. Nina, Wonder Girl, Little Sister came much later. There's about five or so. I might be missing a couple. Um, but she came in. She was actually the winner of 2010, Nina. Mm -hmm. um, that was Wonder Girl's um, matchup in 2011. So she lost that battle, but she lost to the former champ. So that's not a bad thing. You know what I mean? You could have lost to nobody, but you lost to the champ from the previous year. And a female. So it wasn't really no hard feelings. It was kind of her way of, of breaking in into the scene. Um, and she had a shirt on that said Wonder Girl. So she was marketing herself properly. She got to present in front of Boy Wonder, who she named herself after. Kind of the female version to Boy Wonder. So for her, the stage was being set. Like she had judges feeling her. They liked her style. She left an a print, a imprint in their mind. Like who's this young 14, 15-year-old girl that has the courage to come up here and battle a bunch of dudes um and stand and be toe-to-toe -to -toe with them you know what i mean they throw on a banger she throw on a banger so she caught everybody off guard and just being so young it was like she's the youngest i think ever to battle and be female how old was she i believe she was 14 the first year Shh. yeah 14 15 my god it was crazy crazy so to see that because wonder was like that was one of the main things with wonder like this 18 year old guy like in producer's terms, he was real young. 
most producers were like 25, 26, 30, because these are the guys that have the big NPCs and Tritons. And this is a 18-year-old with just software. So him and himself was an anomaly. But to have someone 14 and a female, that was like a next level thing. So she left an imprint on everybody. And then her name was kind of like how Boy Wonder's name. Like, yo, Wonder Girl, Wonder Girl, Girl Wonder. I heard about this Girl Wonder or Boy Wonder Girl. Like they didn't really know the name. Even today, people say, yo, what's up with Girl Wonder? It's like, no, it's Wonder Girl. You know what I mean? But it's like she, just like Boy Wonder kind of became like that that folklore story of this female that came out of nowhere 14 years old killed all these guys in a battle so the next year she came back and that's the year where she won um and right on stage while she's playing beach like judges are exchanging numbers sky zoo was a judge and he's exchanging numbers so it's like from there they already knew like she's 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 a problem you know what i mean so she got to connect with wonder and same thing man the same way his name like Street props is a, is another thing. It's, it's one thing to win prizes and all that stuff, but when your name is out there, you can't put a price on that. You know what I mean? You might not have won the first prize. You might not have won the cash prize or FL Studio or Studio Session, but your name, once your name is out there and people gravitate towards that name, that you can't put a price on that. You know what I mean? And that's what happened to her. Um, her name just became bigger than life. You know what I mean? And it's just been uphill from there. Hmm. And uh, and T minus, T minus. Um, Mr. Uh, well, T minus didn't become T minus at first. He was T bags, um, <laughs> and then he shortened it to bags. So when he was in the battle, he was just known as bags. Um, Shout out to my homie T minus. Right. That's a horrible name, T bags. <laughs> right, right. I don't know where that came from. Um, I'm glad he changed it. I think it's it. just because his name was Tyler, so they wanted a T, something yeah. with T, and I don't know if it was a joke that they played or they're serious, but it was tea bags and they cut it to just bags. Tea bags. Oh, and so it, during his BBM days, it was just known as bags. And then um, somewhere along the line, he changes to T minus. But he's just a humble cat, very quiet. You know, he just let this music do the talking for him. Um, him and Boy Wonder were in a, a group, a collective called Straight Grimy, um, which was. And, and they were both from Ajax. Yeah, both okay. Ajax, which was another funny thing at battles. Like, even when they were winning their first battles, people were like, yo. They just made fun of him because he was from Ajax. From Ajax, you know yeah. what I mean? Because Ajax is the last place you would have thought would be having anything to do with hip hop. Um, that was the first year I can remember that clearly. People were like laughing. It's like, yo, Ajax is a joke, but I, I can mess with this dude if he's from there. I'm messing with Ajax. You know what I mean? So it's just the last place you would think that hip. Because in the early days, it's like people actually associated a certain sound with a certain neighborhood. Like if you had a heartbeat then you had to be coming from a region park or Jane and Finch or Jungle Rexdale they didn't associate suburbs with like hardcore music or good production whereas now the producers are winning 905 you know they're all from the outskirts but um, in the early days of BBM it's like nah if you hardcore you gotta be coming from the hood people just had that association with hood good producer hood good producer and not really the case yeah, so with um, T-minus, you know, just a young cat. He was a year younger than White, um, uh, Wonder. Again, another dude that wasn't supposed to be in the venues, but we got him in. Um, I think his parents didn't really want him to mess with hip-hop because of the perception of it being dangerous and whatnot. Um, but they kind of gave, they let him do his thing. Um, I remember in early interviews with him, it's like, their biggest thing in life was just to produce for Socrates, not to take it away from Socrates, but that's where they were when they were starting to blow up in 2006. When you asked when them, T minus like, and boy one. Right. When I would ask them in our first documentary, when I was interviewing them all, 
going to what's your challenges in the game, what's your, you know, what you feel about hip hop, who do you want to produce for, what's your influences. When we asked them all those questions, they would just be like, yo, well, I'm just new to this. You know, I want to produce for Socrates, Aristo. Like that's as far as they can see it. Just to emphasize what I'm saying, like we didn't really see any of this happening when we were starting out. Like either it was producers, either it was the organizers. All we seen was getting popular in Toronto. Not even Canada yet. If we got across Canada, great. But we never seen like we're going to be making beats for this producer and winning awards and selling millions of records. None of that was... You couldn't even have sold us that idea. You know what I'm saying? We wouldn't even bought the idea if you sold it to us. We just couldn't see any of that. We didn't think that was even possible. Um, so it's, it's, it's a total change in the game. And just to see it and watch it and see it firsthand, it's crazy. Sometimes it's just like, you got to slap yourself like, is this real? Like, you grew up seeing, like, as I said, the primos and all that stuff. And then to see, like, I was just checking the other day, like, Boy Wonder has a song for Eminem, 900 million views on YouTube. Not Afraid? Not Afraid. Like, that is crazy. Like, 900 million people. There's only, what, 6 billion people on the planet? Mm-hmm. So you're saying, like, one out of every six or seven people on the planet have watched that video from a little dude in Ajax. Crazy unheard of and Eminem is one of one is one of his favorites right, as well too right 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 and then you got Hotline Bling 1985 another producer started in BBM mm-hmm. 1.1 billion views for Crazy. you know what I mean so and I remember his first battle I think it was 2008 the first time he battled um, I think he lost first or second round and you know you're coming from that humble beginning yeah. and now 1.1 billion a Grammy award last week or whatever it's crazy, man. It's a beautiful thing. It's crazy. Um, about the book, where can people get that? Um, Amazon, you can get it. There's a few local spots you can get it, like Knowledge Bookstore, um, a different book list on uh, Bathers and Bloor, Knowledge Bookstore in Brampton, played a record on Spadina, and on our website, of course, battleofthebeatmakers.com. There's the soft cover, there's the audio book, and there's the ebook. So You made an audio book? I did an audio book, which I voiced myself, so you can hear me saying the That's whole really book. dope. Straight from my mouth. All platforms. Look at you. Right. Ebook. Right. Pop. Right. Because as you're, as we started off, like people want to drive with it, they want to work out to it, they want to do multiple things while listening to things. So I figured an audiobook would be good for that too. You know, if you want to work out while you're listening to it, you mm-hmm. want to drive while you're listening to it. So that's on the website, battleofthebeatmakers.com, or you can get it on Amazon as well, Amazon.ca. Mm-hmm. Clifton, what's your message now after all these things, the history, the things that you learned that you want to say to, especially our creatives here right. from Toronto? Artists, um, producers, people who are in the industry, any right. knowledge, any wisdom, anything that you want to leave them with. Right. Well, one yeah. thing for sure, sh- there's many different things that could be said. That's a whole nother <laughs> 20 minutes. But one thing is with hip hop, don't expect your closest people around you to support it because parents, especially, it's not a bad thing, but they don't see a career out of art, generally speaking. So telling your parent you want to be a rapper or a singer or a dancer or a DJ, they don't fact they don't see how that's going to pay a rent pay mortgage they're looking at it from a parent's perspective so when you're 16 17 18 and saying this is what i want to do i want to do this kind of art form your first thing is to try to get your parents approval and usually it's not going to come family approval close friends approval because they just don't see the bigger picture just like we didn't see the bigger picture we didn't we we couldn't foretell that people would be paying mortgages off of music we couldn't foresee a, a producer traveling the world and making money and winning awards and getting deals like we couldn't foresee that so don't expect your family close friends and surrounding people to 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 uh, support you in that but if that's what you really want to do 
you got to do the sacrifice. You got to put in the work. And it might not work the way you want it to work. Sometimes you won't even get to enjoy the fruits of your own labor. But you got to look at it as the bigger picture. You know, it's not just about you. If it was just about me, I could have quit a long time ago. But I be I realized it was a bigger thing than just about me. Um, there was nothing for these dudes for production-wise. So even though it was coming out of pocket, I could have been home just chilling with my daughter or something like that. But, you know what I mean? I ended up working two jobs, working a nine-to-five, then working another job in the evening just to get the money to maintain all of that, keep the battles going, maintain having a daughter, maintain your, your family, maintaining your own sanity, your own life. Like, you got to have a life at the end of the day. So juggling all of that, and at a certain point, you get to the point where it's like, is this worth it? Like, what am I getting out of all of this stuff? But you realize with the success of some other people that it's a bigger picture. And you're just a piece of that puzzle, but it's not all about you. So there's a lot that can be said, but you just got to know what you're really in it for and try to keep your mind on the bigger picture. It's usually not going to happen the way you're for, you foresee it to happen because I definitely didn't foresee any of this happening. You know what I mean? I just seen it as a Toronto thing. It's going to stay Toronto. If it gets across Canada, as I said, great. I didn't see any of the Boy Wonder, the Grammys, the... None of that stuff. It would be impossible to have foreseen all of that. But again, I just put my all into it, made some sacrifices along the way. Over time, you started to believe in it. You started to see the vision of it, and then you realize it was bigger than me. So you just play your puzzle. But as far as individually, you want to be a rapper, singer, dancer, DJ, video host, you just got to know that you might not get the support you want, but if that's what you really want to do, just keep pushing forward with it. Believe in yourself. You got to believe in yourself. That's the main, main, main thing. You don't believe it, no one else is going to believe it. What kept you going during those times of doubt and saying, is this really worth it? Why am I doing this? I got a daughter and I'm I'm assuming like maybe family and or, or maybe a spouse is saying, why right. are you doing that? Right, right. Like there, there must have been, Was did you have that? I took a break yeah. in 2009. We didn't do a battle in 2009 because of that exact point. Um, in 2008, I did a four-year run and I rationalized that most rappers in the game have a four-year run and the best of times. A four-year. Four-year run. Four years. So, yeah. and this is even less now. I would say like in the 90s, early 2000s, the average rapper, if they were lucky, they had a four-year career. That was kind of like the when accepted When they were hot. Right. And then right. people moved Nowadays, on. you might have a two-year run. You have a hot single or two and you're done. So, I was Unless just, you're like... Really special. Right, yeah. right, right. So I was kind of rationalizing by saying, okay, well, I had a good four-year run. I'm done. Boy Wonder's gone. T-minus is doing his thing. So at that point, I had already hanged up BBM. In my mind, BBM was done as of 2009. We didn't do a battle that year, but that was the year Boy Wonder had his first celebration, um, first annual party. Um, and it's funny, that story, because the part, the venue that he celebrated his for is his first annual birthday party was the same venue four years before that i was handing out flyers and people were throwing it away that exact spot so i'm here handing out flyers in uh 2005 people are looking at it like what's a beat battle throwing it away first bringing it away and four years later at that exact same club under a different name we celebrating boy wonder's birthday forever is big best i ever had is blowing up so it was funny how things just work you know what i mean because for me, I didn't know that was the venue until I showed up. I was like, damn, this is the same place that I was, you know what I mean? People are dissing the flyer, and now they're coming here to celebrate the success of what all that work was. Hmm. You know what I mean? But at the same time, 
the family thing was starting to take over. It's like, okay, I, I, I had enough. I was, I was like 33 at the time. And it's like, you know what? Let me fall back. I did my work. The scene is different. These guys are starting to become celebrities of their own right. Um, forever. We're just starting to take off. Best I ever had took off. Um, replacement girl was already gone. So it's like, I kind of felt like my job was done. You know? So in 2009, BBM was kaput in my mind. Um, but when I went to the battle, every producer that was there was like, um, they just gave you that look like, yo, when's the next battle? You know what I mean? Like they, I didn't, I didn't really put the word out that there was no battle. I just kind of let time go. But the time that it would have been the battle, which was August, where they were expecting it to be, and then his birthday was, I think it's October fourteenth or something like that. So the battle was like, a, the time for the battle had just passed. So they were still kind of like in the mindset: is there a battle going to happen this year or not? But I didn't put the word out, so it was just like there was no battle. Nobody said nothing. We just kind of let it ride. Show up at his birthday party. Everybody's giving you that look, like, "Yo, what's up?" So it was kind of that thing where they're still dependent on BBM, you know. Because now they're seeing Boy Wonder take off. It's like, "Yo, I battled this guy. I can do this. I'm better than him. I beat him. I want to be that guy." So I could remember like the Mega Man there, Jay Staffs, like all kinds of producers, pro, all the dudes that were blowing up, or I should say, coming up. They all just gave me that look. They didn't say nothing, but I could sense the energy was like, "Yo, when's the next battle?" Can't let us down. Right. You know what I mean? So it was that kind of pressure. So, and that's what brought it back 2010. It was bigger than you. Right. And that's what, you know, it's like, it's like that mob stuff. You're trying to get out and they just pull you right back in. Dope. And then 2010, we just brought it back. All right. So Battle of the Beatmakers still going? Yes. Each and every year? BattleofTheBeatmakers.com? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. yes. It's, it's different. Now, it's not just Toronto. Now we have producers that, like last year, um... Dudes flew in from Australia, Switzerland, South Korea, France, all over the U.S., all over Canada. So it's way out of my hand. It's like, you know what I mean? As I said, every producer that goes on and wins these Grammys, goes on and wins these platinum records, when people do the research and they trace it back, they just push the pressure on it. You got to keep it going. You're not you know part I mean? of history. Right. Yo, Clifton, man, thank you very much no bro, for your contribution. No doubt. No to doubt. the culture, contribution to the culture, not only in Toronto, but it's be, it's affected beyond Toronto. Right. It's, it's made, you know, Toronto what it is today, man. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, is there anything else you wanted to end off with? Um, anything else you want to say? Shout out to Toronto, man. It's been a long ride. You know, our history is deep for people that don't know and people that want to take the time to go beyond um those that are hot right now the story is out there you know this book is one piece that can help you fill in some of those blanks and hopefully more people will continue sharing their stories making movies making films tv shows so that further generations can know the story it's not just about us right here your kids are going to want to know the story you know and they definitely will right clifton on the come up show peace what did you think of my interview with clifton on the come up show podcast I'd appreciate if you haven't already, leave us a five-star rating and review, subscribe. Each and every Wednesday, we upload a brand new interview, a brand new conversation that we think that you'll be interested in. My name is Chet Oya. Thank you for listening. Peace, love, respect. Respect.